and I think that's the thing that we want, wanted it to feel tactile. It, it needed to seduce the film and the place and the people need to seduce us as much as all of us seduced. We need to kind of want to get in there desperately too. So, so it was always sort of trying to kind of find the most effective seduction method, not just for the story, but for, for the audience too. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a student finds himself drawn into the world of an aristocratic classmate in director Emerald Fennell's comedic drama, Saltburn. The film tells the story of Oliver, an Oxford student struggling to find his place, who befriends the charming and aristocratic Felix. Finding himself drawn into Felix's world, Oliver is invited to Saltburn, the sprawling and eccentric family estate, for a summer never to be forgotten. In addition to Saltburn, Fennell's 2020 debut feature, Promising Young Woman, earned her a DGA Award nomination for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. Following the screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Fennell spoke with director David Lowry about filming Saltburn. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Good evening. Thank Hi. you all for being here on a Saturday evening. Yeah, thank you. What a great way to spend a weekend. Yeah. Evening. I know it feels appropriate with these red velvet drapes behind us. It's phenomenal. The whole color scheme feels it's, like just like a perfect way to ease out of this film. Yeah, it does. So the last time we spoke, the movie had not premiered yet, and I couldn't talk about anything. <laughs> <laughs> now, everyone in this room has seen the film. And so I feel yeah. like I can safely ask, how does it feel to now have a film that's entering the unique canon of movies that end with a climactic, cathartic dance number? Um, it's really wonderful. It's, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing better than a naked dance through a castle to Sophia Lispector's Murder on the Dance Floor. So, um, yeah, to, to kind of join those, the hallowed halls <laughs> is very thrilling. At what point did you know that would be the ending? Um, well, it was always going to end with with Oliver um, walking naked through the house. It was it was always kind of designed to be the inverse of Felix's tour. So kind of he takes his own tour, you know, sort of. But um, kind of about halfway through filming, I I felt like, you know, the purpose of it is it's not just an act of like territory claiming, it's not an act of desecration or just, it's also, you know, for the purposes of us, the audience, it's, um, we need to be complicit in the feeling that he has, which is one of kind of joy. Unfettered joy. <laughs> Unfettered yes. joy. And so, yeah, so it kind of needed to be something that got your blood up and kind of made you nod along, even if you, you know, even if you weren't on Oliver's side, it's impossible not to be on his side by the end. It's a happy ending. Totally. Yeah. You mentioned something, I want to go back to the beginning of the movie, but before I do, you mentioned something that is really intriguing to me, which is that you had that, 
realization about halfway through. How, how much did the film evolve as you were shooting it? Like that, like whenever I make a film, I'm always like marveling at like how close it is to the script, but then these little ways that it just like grew into something I never imagined. And how did this film grow in that way for you, aside from that realization that it should end that way? I think it, it's sort of, it's, it's always just, I think like everything in filmmaking, it's the kind of sense, it's, it's pressure and release, isn't it? And those are the kind of pedals, I suppose, that you have all the time. And if you're lucky enough to film in one location like we did with Saltburn, what it does is it, you know, when you suddenly, when you get the sense that you need to apply more pressure or you need a bigger release, then you have the opportunity to kind of change things a little bit. Um, and, and I think that's the most of the work that is done, you know, in production is kind of, is that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's intensifying moments um, rather than kind of remaking things entirely. Um, so yeah, it's a sort of, it's a, it, it's, it's always slightly moving. Going back to the beginning, the movie begins at Oxford where I believe you studied drama. Uh, English. English. And the, I was curious if you knew an Oliver Quick in your time there. I don't think I'd still be alive if I did. Um, I, well, I feel like Oliver Quick. And I think everyone who goes to university, everyone who falls in love with someone who's never going to love them back feels like Oliver Quick. You know, anyone who's, like, all of us have had that feeling of wanting, we all of us want to be special. We all of us want to be desirable, funny, clever, sexy interesting that's what we these are our driving kind of life forces really um and oliver just feels those things maybe maybe he yeah maybe, maybe he he just feels them a little more strongly <laughs> than the rest of us it's why he makes such a wonderful protagonist in spite of doing things we may not agree with we can't help but empathize and sympathize with them throughout I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think certainly Oliver, as well as being a person is kind of, you know, he's also a feeling, um, that all of us have had. And I think, you know, the film in many ways is an expressionistic film. And of course it's hard not to empathize with a character when he's played by an incredible actor like Barry. How did, how totally. did you meet Barry? How did Barry become involved in the project? Um, well, I've been such an admirer of his for so long. Um, and obviously it's seen Killing of a Sacred Deer, another thrilling comedy. Um, my, my favorite comedy. And, um, and so when we were thinking about casting Oliver, in many ways, Barry might not have been, I don't know, you know, maybe he wouldn't have been the first person that people might have thought of this part, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't get him out of my head. And the thing about Barry that's so incredible and he's, the closer you get, the less you know. And the more you try and catch him, the further away he gets. It's, it's a sort of remarkable thing. And that's sort of what Oliver that's what Oliver needed to feel like because the thing is is that Saltburn is a is a gothic you know it is it 
takes its cue from the gothic British novels, I guess, of Brideshead and um, the go-between. And they all have, or even, you know, something like Great Gatsby is a good example. They all have unreliable first-person narrators. And that's very difficult to do in a film, you know. Um, and so you need somebody who is enigmatic enough that you can read lots of different things into their performance, but not so isolating that you don't care. It's very difficult, a, a direct, very difficult balance. And yeah, Barry, I, I can't really think that anyone could have done it so beautifully. He's like an inscrutable raw nerve where you just like feel everything, but can't quite ever wrap your head and, or head around him entirely. And I was like struck by like, Everything about this movie is like so, like watching it again here in particular, getting to see it in this screen, I have to say, like seeing it masked properly with the 4-3 oh. aspect ratio, what a joy that was. <laughs> and I thought there were so many things, you know, I was just like taken by the first time, but the second time I was really paying attention to how the scenes were constructed, how you covered them. I wanted to talk, because we're here in the DJ theater, and I feel like I can talk about things that directors get excited about, like... Yeah. How many days did you have for this scene or that scene? Right. Oh, well, we never had more than a day to shoot any scenes. So um, it was a 46-day shoot, which was luxury because Promising Young Woman was 23 days. Yeah. So uh, we just couldn't believe the amount of time we had. Um, and um, the longest scene was the shepherd's pie scene. That took a whole day. Um, just because of the coverage, you know, it's a long scene. Um, but no, we like to be quite, I like to be thoughtful about coverage. I don't get, you know, much excess. Things tend to be kind of planned fairly um, precisely in advance. And, and you know, that's the wonderful thing about working with Linus too, is both of us like to be more expressionist mm -hmm. in our in our work so so actually a lot of the time you're kind of working with the production designers with everyone to to make the to kind of provide this pathetic fallacy that every scene every camera move has this sort of emotional kind of you know an emotional reason behind it and so m my hope for any film but this film in particular is would it work as a silent film? Mm. You know, do, can you watch it on mute and do you have an idea of what's happening? And, and the hope is that because of, you know, for example, the seduction scene um, when Oliver um, seduces Venetia, the vampire scene, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of the most gothic, overtly gothic moment. Um, and I think every scene has its own, not just its own, kind of look but its own feeling its own emotional kind of yeah reasoning I suppose can you talk about for example the scene Venetia's final scene in the bathtub like getting yeah. into a scene like that where the coverage is very simple like I was like I think it's maybe three shots or at least a, one shot it's just one yeah how do you like when you get in there do you sit down with the actors and block it out obviously there's not much movement in there but well there's no actually that's so that is a prosthetic of Phoenicia. Oh, when she's in the... Yeah. But the scene before that, when, when, oh, when she and Barry are... Yes. Okay. Sorry. I, um, I thought you meant Phoenicia's But that one death. too, because that one is yeah. a strong image. Yeah. It's quite 
devastating. What's so weird is that, yeah, she, she's a prosthetic in that scene because obviously you can't make bath water still enough with a and real to person. to get that reflection on the surface. And of- exactly to do that kind of focus pull to see Oliver. Um, but me and Victoria Boydell, the amazing editor, kept seeing her blink. Really? In the edit. <laughs> Even though we knew that she wasn't real. That's so awful. very disturbing. She would say, it happened again. And I was like, stop it. Stop it, Victoria. Haunted but the scene before, suite. the scene before is, yes, it's that, it's that they're wide and then it's um, um, two singles. And, and, and then the super, super close shot. I mm-hmm. mean, I like... I like to be very, very close. It's why one three three is so beautiful because just you can. Face. It's just full face, and then you can do the things that that it was so important with this film. You know, when you're making a film about beauty, when you're making a film about the fetish of beauty, whether it's houses or people, you need that human texture. So, so much of the discussion early on was sort of skin, skin tone, pores. His taste buds, armpit hair, the sense of the human kind of inside all of it. Um, but yeah, when it comes to those sorts of scenes, you know, you don't need, you don't need much. You don't need much coverage. You just want yeah. to let them do their job. And are there like, how do the actors, how do you work with the actors in a scene like that where it is so heightened, so intense, so exposed and mm-hmm. then there are these moments like I found myself wondering is like did Barry know she was going to put his her fingers in his mouth and I'm sure the answer is yes but like it just felt so alive and like well I think that's the key isn't it is it's getting everyone to a stage where I think the more the kind of thing of this film for all of us was sort of was supporting each other and pushing each other to kind of go harder, deeper, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so with that scene, um, I don't think Barry did know, but sometimes, you know, it's giving people the freedom to do what they want. Sometimes it's whispering something in somebody's ear. There was one point in the last, the last take, I asked Barry to get into the bath with her. Um, and it didn't work, but she didn't know. And it was so thrilling. And that's the thing, I think, just it always being surprising, having different motive. you know, it's it's just the fun of it. When the actors are that good, you just, you're just wanting to kind of, you know, the kiss was introduced late. There wasn't a kiss initially, and then it felt like there needed to be the worst kiss in the world. <laughs> And that's the moment where he realizes, of course, he's going to kill her when she pulls yeah. away. It's an extraordinary Because it was an opportunity for her to live and she fucked up. And it's right there. It's right there in that, in that two shot. Yeah. What were some of the conversations uh, you and Linus had about the, the look of the film? Because it is so gorgeous. It is so textural. It's exquisite. There's so much beautiful chiaroscuro. There's so much beautiful um, stickiness to it not just in terms of like what we're looking at but just the way the images stick in our heads afterwards how did you what were some of the reference points you may have talked about paintings photography yeah it was a lot of a a lot of paintings so absolutely we were looking at Caravaggio but we were also looking at kind of British formal sort of portrait painters so Gainsborough um and Joshua Reynolds again beautiful skin beautiful 
um, fabric texture. And I think that's the thing that we want, wanted it to feel tactile. It, it needed to seduce the film and the place and the people need to seduce us as much as all of us seduced. We need to kind of want to get in there desperately too. So, so it was always sort of trying to fight, trying to kind of find the most effective seduction method, not just for the story, but for, for the audience too. And it was just, yeah, it was just a joy working with Linus because, you know, he, it, it's, it's always about kind of finding the most engaging, beautiful thing. It's not, it's, you know, we're not worried about so much kind of light sources or, you know, all of the things that, you know, being tethered to reality can sometimes be a bit of a drag, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, and when you, realize that actually it's a joy to be bombastic and um expressive and unsubtle and all the things that you know the people that I love like you know Peter Greenaway or um you know Merchant Ivory I suppose up to a point that up to a point yeah yeah what we Joseph Lucy that's who we were talking about side note what's your favorite Peter Greenaway film um, the Draftman's Contract. Yeah, extraordinary. Uh, retrospective last year. Really? Yeah, that was just fantastic. So we could talk about that all day, but we're not here to talk about <laughs> Peter Greenway, though I would recommend everyone check out, you know, all of the films that are being re-released right now. The um, the editing, you mentioned working with your editor. She and both of you created such an incredible sense of rhythm. And I wanted to talk about that that dinner table scene after um, after the party when they're the lunch after dealing after discovering Felix's death because it is I think the perfect marriage of every element that goes into a film you've got the production design with the red curtains you've got the obviously the cinematography is uh crucial and the coverage of a scene especially around a dinner table yeah, where there's the worst, the worst. yeah the worst so ha- boring and and you've and you've complicated things for yourself by having someone go to a window also so they're adding an extra eye line in there nightmare and then the sound design of just the the corner outside mm-hmm. all of those elements are so perfectly married how was it constructing that scene both on set and then i'm sure again in the edit as it all came and crystallized yeah, totally. I mean, that was, it was a real beast because I think it's nine pages of dialogue, that scene. And, and obviously, um, it sort of was always cut in half, designed to be cut in half because the moment the curtains shut and the room goes red, you know, you really hovel yourself in the edit. If you want to switch things around, you definitely can't. Um, and so, yeah, so it was kind of for all of us, it was just about, you know, it needed to feel like a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it also, it's interesting. I think that people, people have read it as, is the, the family being callous. I actually don't think it's callous at all. I think it's an act of just like profound desperation because if, when the worst thing, when the worst conceivable thing happens, what, what else is there to do? What, can you do there's no reason to anything anymore you might as well eat or you know it's I think it's often when you're in a great deal of shock you can sort of put one foot in front of the other and it's the only way of making sense of something but I think that you know the the, it was sort of about the tension like ratcheting up the tension up to the coroner passing and all of that you know that in the edit that was the hardest thing was that conversation about 
cake and how your hands need to, you know, your hands need to be cold to make pastry and, and it just gets worse and worse. And, you know, and such a beautiful performance from Paul Reese, who plays the butler, Indeed. Duncan. And it's the, only, it's the first time that Duncan, it's the only time that Duncan breaks. Yeah. And it's so awful. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think, yeah, it's the most important. And one of the first scenes, I think I, that I, it was always the kind of island you, you know, you write, there are moments that, you know, you need to kind of swim to. And it was one of those first, that it was one of the first islands, the shepherd's pie scene for me. I find, I, I find one of my favorite things in film is finding a way to tangibly, texturally, express something intangible or ephemeral mm. and grief is one of those things and just and what you say just now about how it's not callous this is just a way of expressing grief each person is expressing it in a different way in that scene and then of course you have the scene that I'm sure everyone's been asking you about at the gravesite, mm. which is a a scene that for me at least especially watching a second time is an island it's such a that scene the bathtub scene all the scenes that people may have a strong reaction mm. to you or they're just like afterwards are saying we've got to see the movie where this happened but at the same time it's it's got these ultra elements to it but it also they're un, so underlined by emotion that part of the reason that they are so effective and are so difficult to wrestle with is that the emotion is so true to them were those was that were those scenes always how you got there or did you just find as you were writing the screenplay that you like for example the bathtub scene that that was just the best way to express what was going on in his mind at that moment. Well, yeah, well, the bathtub scene was the first scene of the movie. It was like the inciting moment. It was the first thing I ever thought of when I thought of Saltburn seven years ago was it, the first thing was Oliver was a, was a young man saying I wasn't in love with him and then that young man licking the bottom of a bathtub. So that was always the lie you know it the, it, the whole thing started with the lie with the first person liar um you know because if you're licking the bottom of somebody's bathtub you're definitely definitely <laughs> in love with them I would say so um so then so there were those things but then with the with the grave it was different because the grave you know it was one of those things that kind of I don't want to say escalated, but again, it just became apparent it needed to be, it just, um, the thing I talk about, quite, I've been talking about quite a lot is that in Wuthering Heights, um, Heathcliff digs down with his hands to get to Kathy in her grave. And the implication is very much that he wants to touch her to some degree. And... I think so so it sort of feels in line with the like gothic of this film but also but you know it was it was originally going to be a little bit more restrained and then on the day I said you know Barry think Oliver would unzip and Barry said close the set <laughs> but you know that's what's so great about working with Barry is you make a you make a suggestion like unzip and you really get, <laughs> you really get what you asked for. Um, you know, but it's, it, it's, it's the thing, the thing about that scene is so interesting because obviously <laughs> we, 
first showed it to the, there was a kind of like oh, okay you know do you want to cut it though you mm-hmm. could maybe you should cut it <laughs> we know what's going to happen so like just you know when he starts unbuttoning his strap just cut it and the thing is my argument is always that that makes it a, that's a joke yeah so that's the thing about that's why the edit's so glorious is that you know when these decisions are so important you cut it there it's a gag and it's not a gag you cut it midway through the sex and he's enjoying it and that's not real either but the important thing about staying there is that he himself realizes what a pathetic futile terrible absurd thing he's doing it you know it's you kind of need the whole thing and and it is, you know, and I, and I sort of feel like, and I, I feel the same way with lots of things in films. I sort of think, you know, we don't have to look away. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's good to look. It's confronting and uncomfortable and it's funny and all of the things, but it's, you know, it's sort of good to have to look sometimes. It's one of the reasons to go to the movies. So thank you for the lack of restraint. <laughs> You're and also for sustaining it, which is just marvelous. <laughs> It's just fantastic. Another thing I love about that is the use of music in that sequence, yeah. which, of course, it cuts out halfway through, which is what makes it. That's at the point which you realize this is emotional, and you start feeling it. Is pulling that music out, but the music, as with everything else in the movie, is gorgeous. Can you talk thank about working you. with your composer? Yeah. Oh, well, worked thank with before, you. Is, of course. Yeah, I mean Anthony Willis. He's so amazing. It, well, so that so that piece of music is is a hymn called. Lord, dear Lord and Father of Mankind. Oh no, sorry, Lord of All Hopefulness, which is a very famous British hymn. Um, and actually it just ends. It doesn't cut out. It just ends. It reaches its, it reaches its yeah. end. And then there's that kind of awful silence. And me and, and Anthony used a lot of like British hymns as a reference point for this, you know, to have that sort of uber British kind of, um, yeah, sort of bride's head fetish feeling. And so the, so in the script, the opening, you know, monologue, I wasn't in love with him, was set to Zadok the priest. And and then it was to sort of reach its climax as it does in the opening credits. And then we follow Oliver. And what we talked about a lot was kind of it was sort of should feel like Brexit fantasy. It's that it's the thing of like it's it's arch. It's over the top. It's all the things that these that are kind of fetish for, I don't know, country houses and all of these things, it kind of needed to have that thing, that feeling. And so, um, and Zadok the Priest is the coronation theme. And this is a film about a coronation, really, I suppose. And so we, um, so I said to Anthony, it would be amazing if the score was sort of born out of Zadok. Um, And so he wrote this incredible theme, um, because I think a theme is such an mm-hmm. underrated thing, Indeed. especially if you have a film that's kind of tonally takes you to different places. It, it's sort of a spine. And so every single piece of music in this that is scored is, is, a, is the theme. It's the same piece of music again and again. It just feels so different. And then at the very end, it becomes Zadok again. And so, yeah. How has the reaction been, if you've been able to to parse it out, between from a British audience to an American audience? Um, 
I honestly, it it kind of changes from room to room. It's not even like a British American thing. It's what's really wonderful and why it's so wonderful when people see it in the theatre is that, you know, in the moments that are kind of a bit more like transgressive, maybe you have this thing where there's a reaction, there's a like visceral reaction, but it's quite different. So some people are laughing, some people are like gasping, some people are screaming, some people are complaining, some people are bored, some people think everyone else is just like incredibly lame to have any reaction at all because nothing is nothing that they're seeing is remotely surprising or transgressive. And everyone in the room thinks that everyone else's response is deranged. And so then the audience kind of turns on itself. You have the thing that people, you know, people go, oh my God. And then other people saying, shut up. And then like, oh no. And all of it. And it's just like, it's just such a joy. It's such a joy because that's, you know, that's why you make a movie. So people sit in the dark with strangers and wonder about each other. You know, it's, it's a very like powerful relationship so I don't know. I, it's it's thrilling. I think, you know, but I do think in England we are more comfortable. Maybe, no, maybe that's not true. I think we have such a like grotesque, we have a love of the grotesque mm -hmm. and of the re truly revolting comedy. And so <laughs> I think perhaps like some of the, you know, some of the more kind of awful moments towards the end, um, you know, with the, thing, with the things that people in England were like, yes, absolutely, <laughs> yanking that, yeah, yanking the tube out of her throat is very fun. You know, it's just it's a kind laugh of, riot. Yeah. yeah, it's a laugh riot. <laughs> it, so it just depends, really. Whenever, like, I make a movie, I always am like, you know, hopefully, like, we make a great movie and we are going to share it with an audience. But the thing I always think back to, like, what are those moments on set that I'll carry with me for the rest of my life? Mm the happy moments where I'm like, I'm getting to make this movie and how do I, how, the, the, the commemorative, you know, afternoon on set with the great crew that I love. What are some of the happy moments from this movie that you have? Like what's something that you'll carry with you for the rest of your life? Oh my God, it was all so amazing. Um, honestly, I mean, every day was so thrilling. I think, I think the party was fun because it was a night shoot and it was 300 essays and it had to feel like a real party because parties in films or nightclub scenes in films are often very bleak they're too clean you know often you find the floors are too clean or people look too good or you know there's not that sense of things like the party needed to feel like there was the potential for things to get dangerous like really good parties you yes. know it gets scary at some point and so you know, but so keeping just keeping just everyone working to keep everyone's energy up. And, you know, it's that you get that moment at like four in the morning when everyone's like totally lost their minds. Yep. And yet, you know, the sun comes up and and you just think you just can't believe you've you've all managed to pull it off. Well, you pulled it off. Thank you so much for making this movie, for presenting us to for us tonight. And uh, thank you all for coming to experience it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback. 
and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 